I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. For decades, education reformers have sought to expand parental choice over the school their child attends. They've pushed for school voucher programs, for tax credit-funded scholarships, and for the creation of charter schools, all with some success. But have reformers all this time been thinking too small? Or perhaps have they not been thinking small enough? Enter the education savings account, the newest arrow in the quivers of some school choice advocates. Rather than simply enabling families to select the school of their choice, ESAs provide families with access to some or all of the funds that their state would have spent on their child's education. Families, in turn, can spend those funds not only on private school tuition, but also on a wide range of other state-approved educational services. ESA programs are now on the books in five states, including Nevada, which in 2015 enacted a sweeping law that makes all public school students statewide eligible, regardless of their family's income. Does Nevada's program represent the future of school choice? And should it represent the future of school choice? I'm Marty West, Executive Editor of Education Next, and joining me today to discuss the ESA model are Matt Ladner and Nelson Smith, authors of competing essays on the subject in the journal's latest issue. Matt is the Senior Advisor for Policy and Research at the Foundation for Excellence in Education, while Nelson is the former President and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Thanks to both of you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Marty. So this podcast represents something of a departure for the Ednext podcast. Uh, usually I'm interviewing an author about their perspective on the topic that they've written about. Uh, today we have two competing perspectives, so we thought it'd be fun to have something of a debate. So uh, rather than serving as the interviewer, I'll serve as the moderator and, if necessary, the referee. Um, but we'll ask each of you to help us understand your perspective on the ESA model. And Matt, your essay argues that it really represents a major advance over previous incarnations of school choice. So I'd like to start off by asking you to take a minute or two to explain the ESA model and why you're so excited about it. Right. So it, it's kind of moving from uh, a program that would embrace school choice, right? You can either take all your money to this school or that school, which is in itself a very good thing, um, to advancing to beyond that, so it's more like educational choice. Um, under an ESA model, a parent is actually uh, in charge of managing a state-funded account uh, with state oversight uh, that includes expenses like um, you know, private school tuition as an allowable expense, individual public school uh, uh, expenses, but also a lot of other things like the hiring of private uh, tutors, uh, certified therapists. Uh, you can take courses at community colleges or universities, and most crucially of all, in my view, um, you can actually save money from year to year. Um, and most of the programs actually allow you to put some money away for future higher education expenses. So uh, we, we believe that this is important because it gives parents the incentive to judge providers not just on perceived quality but also on the basis of costs, and we think that sets up the right incentives for providers to try to provide the best possible services at the lowest possible cost, 
which of course is how most of the world works uh, most of the time. So um, it, it's a very new approach. It only started five years ago in Arizona. There's a lot for us to figure out, and it particularly fits, I think, Nevada's context quite well um, because the the central reality of, of Nevada schooling is that um, not only do they have a quality problem when you look at their NAEP scores, uh, but they are simply overwhelmed um, by overcrowding in the public school system. So uh, a system that allows people to uh, seek other types of education um, is something that could help actually relieve a, a very acute overcrowding problem there. Nelson, your essay argues that ESAs actually pose a substantial risk for the school choice movement and threaten to disrupt efforts to expand charter schooling in particular. Now, we should mention the Nevada case, uh, sorry, the Nevada program is currently in court, uh, and so it's not being implemented yet. Um, I believe the ACLU has challenged it on the grounds that it violates uh, separation of church and state uh, by allowing public funds to uh, be used at religious schools, but I take it your concerns are quite different. What has you worried about the ESA model? Yeah, Marty, I'm not worried about the, the stuff the ACLU is raising. You know, I, I believe that uh, as a veteran of Catholic education, they trained me to be a pretty good citizen, and I don't worry about the, uh, the sending dollars to uh, sectarian schools with the right uh, controls. My uh, issues really are with the Nevada program and the way it's uh, set up. Uh, while I generally you know, love the idea of expanding choice, I've worked on it a long time, uh, but my concerns really do arise from long experience in the charter sector, having to do with whether you simply make additional choices available or whether those choices will represent something that's better for the kids uh, than the kids have currently. So uh, right at the moment, for example, I think there, there is a critical need, especially in Nevada, to fix uh, the education for low-income children. While there's a problem more generally, as Matt said, states not particularly high-performing, there is a critical need uh, to fix uh, the, the uh, educational possibilities for low-income kids. And the way the funding for this uh, program is structured, uh, it's really too low to give them the purchasing power that they would need to compete successfully with more affluent families. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why, as, as you both know, Howard Fuller, the great uh, pioneer of choice, uh, does not uh, support this program is because, uh, in a view that I share, it's essentially going to be a, a, a subsidy to affluent parents who already have the means to buy the private educations uh, that their kids, uh, that they want for their kids. Um, the amount that goes to low-income families is not nearly going to be enough to pay for high-quality education, which leads to the other problem that I have, and this is maybe in some ways the more pertinent issue. Um, we know from long experience in charters that you can't hothouse good schools. And what I worry about is that, as Matt uh, uh, agrees, I think, there is a real paucity of private options now. They're mostly there for affluent families. They're mostly in higher-income neighborhoods. And what I worry about is essentially if you take uh, new dollars and hand them out without some serious quality controls, uh, there'll be a lot of people who will come along and say, hey, I'll start a new uh, uh, private school for you fast and cheap. And as we have learned in the charter world, unless there are some uh, standards attached to what kinds of schools uh, get started and as to the backgrounds of the people doing that, 
uh, you can wind up with a whole lot of bad schools that wind up having to be closed. We learned that in 1998 in Texas when all of the 109 charters were approved, and since then about 40 or 50 percent of them have had to be closed. So while agreeing strongly in principle with the aims of this program and actually agreeing with some of the, the tweaks Matt suggests for it, um, I, I do really have a serious problem with what is going to be generated by this new influx of funding. So, Matt, Nelson raises two issues that I think are closely related here, the funding levels for the program and whether the supply side response will generate high-quality options. Um, maybe you could address both of those for us. Sure. Yeah, the, um, um, I think that, um, that I reread Nelson's piece, and I think one thing that, that, that I think we just do disagree about is that um, I just looked up the fourth grade NAEP reading scores for high or middle to high income kids in Nevada, and only 42% of them are at proficiency in the 2015 NAEP. So uh, while there is an acute problem, and it's even more acute problem amongst low income students in Nevada, uh, it's not the case that there aren't problems everywhere. <laughs> so uh, so a, a universal program is, is I think, uh, quite uh, a desirable thing. And I think as if you think through how this could play out, um, even if it is the case that the early adopters are going to be on the higher income scale, um, you know, that, that could open up spots for kids to do open enrollment transfers in more desirable districts like, say, Incline Village. Um, secondly, on the funding side of things, um, the Nevada ESA program is, is actually profoundly more progressive than the way we fund public schools in, in not only Nevada but also around the country. Uh, it does actually give extra resources to low-income kids, uh, which is in stark contrast to, you know, what normal practice. So, for instance, in Nevada, if you're going to Incline Village, uh, you're, you can attend a high school that's going to get over $13,000 a kid. If you're a, a kid in Las Vegas, you're looking at less than $9,000 a kid. That's, that's pretty normal. That we, we generally give the most to the kids that, that start with the most. Uh, in Nevada, uh, we can argue about, and I actually agree with Nelson to this extent, that I would like to give still more additional dollars to low-income kids. What you see is the opposite, with more money going to a low-income child than a, than a, a high-income child. So let's um, stay on that for a second there, Matt, because uh, the numbers you just uh, just reported for different districts in Nevada, 9,000, 13,000, are actually quite a bit more than what families will receive under the ESA program, right? I believe it's yes, uh, 5,100 for... The, the question of the overall buying power is a legitimate one. And um, what I can say about that is, is that it was the intention of the bill sponsors to actually have 100% of the money um, local and state follow the child, and that was changed very late in the process, but not because of some, you know, hard-heartedness on the part of school choice supporters. Um, there was a late, an amendment, a late amendment that was attached to get the thing to pass, and it was done at the behest of the school districts. The school districts wanted to keep their local money, even though they weren't actually taking the child. So, uh, had that not been done, these amounts would be in the eight thousands, and 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 you know there would be less concerns along the lines of what Nelson is raising here. Yeah. Um, so you know we're looking at fifty seven hundred dollars for a low income child and fifty one hundred for a non low income child. Now is that enough? 
we don't know uh, because you can use these things for more than just private tuition and because the the number of private schools in Nevada is so low. I mean, there are half the, you know, about half the percentage of private school kids in Nevada is the national average. Um, we don't know exactly how Nevada parents are going to make use of these funds. Um, you know, sort of, you know, what would they do with their newfound freedom? Uh, there's really only one way to find out, and and that is to you know to let them go. It's a bit like you know flying the airplane while you're building it. I'll admit, um, and I do think that there are important uh, sort of uh, guardrails and and uh, institutions that need to be built, especially along the lines of having parents review vendors. Um, and sort of a, a Yelp-like system that I believe the Nevada Treasurer's Office is, is, is hoping to do in the second year of the program. Um, but um, in the end of the day, experiential learning is the best type. Nelson, you're not too confident in the value of a Yelp-style uh, Yelp review Well, process. you know, hey, I'd love to see that. I mean, that what, good information is, is the uh, necessary condition for choice to work well. And there's, you know, I, I would be fine with parents doing a Yelp-style kind of review of not just the schools but technologies and so forth. That's great. Um, but there's a lot of people who wouldn't be participating, and there's a lot of taxpayers whose money is going to be going into this who, who wouldn't be part of that, that review. And so you have to have somebody speaking for the public interest. I mean, that's kind of a dreary word among choice advocates, but the fact is other, other folks are paying for it. I want to go back to that question you raised, Marty, though, about the gap in funding. I, I think it's a real, it's a real issue. Um, the the 5100 per pupil or even the 5700 for a low-income student, that compares with average tuition in the state of 8500 and at the high school level of more than 10000 So in the case of a high school student, you're asking a parent uh, uh, with very few means to make up a $5,000 gap. That may be one of the reasons why, at least in the early going, and Matt, you may have later numbers than this, but I haven't found them online, uh, most of the people applying to use the ESAs were coming from affluent neighborhoods. They weren't coming from low-income neighborhoods. And that's maybe a function of just communications about the program, but it also suggests to me that maybe people are just doing the math and saying, this isn't, number one, this isn't going to buy, uh, you know, entry into a private school, and number two, there's no school to take it to at the moment. These private options simply don't exist. Now, on on the other side, you know, some of these things that could happen in terms of tutoring and technology and saving for college and all that, that's all pretty exciting to me. I, I, I like that stuff. And I think there's where, uh, you know, maybe a robust market will, will come about. But there's a reason why we call those things supplemental services. People want to have a good school to send their kids to. And this is why... It's not so much that I worry about ESAs taking business away from charters. I just think expanding the charter option would be a wiser move here because, number one, uh, you do have, you know, competent authorizers who will do that kind of gatekeeper uh, function. You can expand. There's no cap in Nevada. The key to that may be actually doing some work on the funding side. With the very low per pupil funding, this has been fixed somewhat by the uh, tax bill last summer, which is going to steer some more resources. But that's one of the keys to bringing in to incentivize some of the high-performing uh, charter networks that so far have kind of given the state a cold shoulder. Uh, if you can do that either by direct chartering or by expanding the Achievement School District, which of course is to you know turn around low-performing district schools with charters, uh, I think that's probably a much better way of expanding 
especially in the neighborhoods where charters have have shown to have a real power, and that's in uh, urban areas. So I think that's, to me, that that's a more sensible solution than kind of the shot in the dark that I think Matt's describing. Matt, is your vision for the ESA program and the response of participants in it that they will be piecing together what have been thought of as supplemental services but need not necessarily be, that they will be modeling out new ways of packaging a set of services that add up to a well-rounded and effective education? Yeah, I'm certain that'll be the case. In fact, we've already seen that happening here in Arizona. Uh, One of our first-year ESA uh, mothers um, uh, testified recently in Arizona and and basically said, you know, if she she has a special needs child and she was at the end of a rope and was, you know, going to sue the school district and whatnot, found out about the ESA program, skipped that whole process, enrolled her child in a private school. Um, in the second year, she said, you know what? I it, No horror stories. The private school wasn't terrible, but I just decided that I could do it better. Um, so uh, her son's education now is being conducted by certified tutors, people who specialize in, in teaching reading to sight-impaired uh, the children. Uh, he's doubled the amount of therapy that he was getting in the public school system, and it's more of an a la carte approach. So, you know, I, I they, you know, is that going to be for everyone? No, it's not. Um, so, I, I, I and and with Nevada's case, let me just to address something Nelson raised a moment ago. Uh, I'm an I'm an all of the above type of guy, and the United States Census Bureau is projecting the five to seventeen year old population in Nevada to increase by sixty three percent between 2010 and 2030. The state is already drowning in enrollment growth, um, which means, yes, I agree with Nelson, we need all the charter schools in, in, in Nevada we could possibly get, okay? Um, but they, you know, even under the most uh, cheery scenario, cannot begin to accommodate not only that level of enrollment growth, uh, but also, there are a lot of schools right now, a lot of kids right now sitting in district schools that need a different setting, obviously, at least from what we can tell from the, the test score. So there's there's plenty of room to go around. Um, the, 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 you know, and, and, you know, Howard Fuller was mentioned earlier. Uh, what, what I had a back and forth with, with Howard uh, a few months ago, and I, I have the deepest respect for Howard. But I think that the, the, the situation in Nevada is so different than, say, an industrial Midwestern city that has a lot of uh, Catholic schools with empty seats in them. The, the current stock of private schools in Nevada is almost irrelevant when you look at the scale of the increase in the student population, the scale of, of overcrowding in the district school system. Um, we do need to be kind of trying an all-of-the-above type of approach, in my view, because um, you know, Nevada needs all the help they can get. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I tend to be an all of the all of the all of the above type of guy as well, uh, Matt. I, I guess uh, I think it's not inconceivable that you could take the basic approach of this program uh, and add some of what uh, my colleague Greg Richmond calls guardrails uh, to it that would protect uh, some of the public interest issues I'm, I'm talking about, as well as, by the way, I, uh, one other thing we haven't talked about is. The, the equity issues involved when private schools can just simply refuse admission to kids. I think that needs to be fixed as the price of participation with public dollars uh, in, in a program like this. Um, and whatever route we take to expanding the kind of options that are there, I, I also want to be clear about one other thing. I'm not talking about creating any sort of heavy-handed, you know, 
state apparatus for all this. You raised the question of having a Yelp-type review. I think the private sector has to play a robust role here in informing parents about their choices and offering kind of quality comparisons. You know, one of the things I stumbled across in researching this was some research about tutoring, which shows that, you know, in this one study that unless you have like 40 hours a week of it, it's not, you know, it's not going to produce much in the way of results. And so I think, you know, we have to, we have to kind of let parents know these things. And that's probably a role for, you know, think tanks, resource centers, support organizations uh, that would actually help the market to function better if, if, if you go in this direction. Matt, in your vision, would there be the analog to a charter school authorizer for the types of organizations that accept funds under an ESA model? No, uh, I think I think I'm a little skeptical of our ability to tell in advance who's going to be good and who's going to be bad. Um, now, that might be a regional sort of bias that I have. I live in Arizona, next door to Nevada, and we're a bit of, you know, the Wild West out here. And it's actually worked out quite well for us. You know, the 2015 NAEP Arizona's charter school sector just knocked the ball out of the park, even though we're kind of wildly, kind of widely regarded as this wild, unkempt place. Um, seems to be working for us. I do think that that um, a, a process like so, uh, Nelson, you raised uh, supplemental services under NCOB in your piece. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't doubt for a second that that didn't turn out the way we had hoped. Um, the good thing is, is that there were there was no there was nothing like any kind of Yelp system back then, right? You know, so the the snake oil salesman, so to speak, had free reign. Uh, what I would ultimately like to see is a system where uh, parent reviews are actually mandatory above a certain dollar amount spent. You know, if a, if a parent buys a big chief tablet, it'll you know at a grocery store. I don't think that that's necessary for a review, but something like a tutor, an online program. Um, you know, some of our students may choose to take a MOOC from Stanford, say, and uh, pay the $85 for the end-of-course exam. Now, uh, I'm sitting here in Phoenix right now. I can tell you I don't think the Arizona Department of Education has either the desire or the capability of telling us whether that that class from Stanford was either good or appropriate for a high school student or anything like that. I do, however, think that the parents and the, and the students that actually took the course, I think we would be very interested in what they thought about those subjects for that course, and that in this fashion we can develop a very uh, powerful resource for parents to access in judging uh, providers and service providers generally. And this is becoming increasingly ubiquitous in life. Um, it, it's just something that, that obviously grade schools is, is sort of antecedent to that as well. Um, and we've, we've got research now that shows that parents pay attention to the reviews, that they actually are very influential in, in how people uh, use grade schools. So uh, there's a lot of work to do on this, and I don't want to pretend like we have it all figured out. Uh, but I do think that we're on the way to making the, uh, a system like this, you know, more manageable and to have a lot more respect for the independence and dignity of parent, parental decision making. You know, and I would certainly want to know what parents think, but I also want to know what are the hard outcomes. Uh, however, we decide to measure that, and we know that it's not just reading and math tests and so forth these days. More than that, that's what good authorizers do. But I want to go back to a quick comment that you made, uh, Matt, about Arizona. One of the reasons I will wager that you've seen this uptick in NAEP is that the Arizona State Commission that oversees all those schools has been closing a lot of the poor-performing schools that they authorized for 15-year charters a long time ago. 
And since then, we have learned a lot about how to spot who is likely to uh, open a strong school and who is not. I mean, the craft of authorizing has actually moved way ahead since then. So I, I would put it this way. If we can incorporate some kind of measure where you do, you know, you subject to some scrutiny these people who come on and want to use the, uh, the ESA money to start new schools, uh, you could probably talk me into supporting it. Uh, until then, I, I continue to have some reservations about the likely quality because, again, this is, this is something we have really learned uh, over the last 25 years in charter world. Well, I gave Matt the opening word in the debate, and so I'll let Nelson close it with that comment. And so that'll do it for this week's edition of the Ednext podcast. I'm Marty West, and my guests have been Matt Ladner and Nelson Smith, whose essays on the education savings account model are available now at educationnext.org. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Nelson, for a spirited but, I think, civil and informative debate. (laughs) Thanks, Marty. Thank you, Marty. Bye. And thanks for your essays. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.